A wise man once said, to truly live, you must do one thing each day that scares you. Congratulations. You're listening to The Ron Van Dam Show. Scary, huh? Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Good night. It's The Ron Van Dam Show. Okay, sure, why not? Hold on tight. Things can get a bit weird. If you like that sort of thing... Welcome to the program. <laughs> I sound upset, don't I? Welcome to the program. It's the Ron Van Dam Show. Thanks for coming. Come on. Group hug. There you go. That's what we needed. Hey, how you doing? I have a very interesting show for you in my estimation, and I estimate it will be very interesting. I have a guest who's going to join me for the entire length of the program, which is 30 minutes. And we're going to talk about the 100 worst ideas in history. Uh Uh-huh. Not the worst ideas for radio shows. We don't want to go there. (laughs) Because I think I have all those awards. Uh, no, this is, these are the worst ideas in history. And how do you pare that down? But uh, Michael N. Smith did, and we're going to speak to him today as he's our special guest. So sit down, hold on to yourself, get yourself a beverage. Here we go. Michael Smith is the founder, executive producer, and creative director of Beard Boy Productions. And uh, this is, uh, he's done something that uh, is kind of amusing and fun. And uh, I got to find out uh, how this got together. But he's he's done an audio book, which is called 100 of the Worst Ideas in History, Humanity's Thundering, Brainstorms Turn Blundering, Brain Farts with (laughs) Riotous Results. Um, that's all part of the title. <laughs> it's a it's a long title. It's actually one hundred of the worst ideas in history. But yes, you also read the subtitle. Yes. Thank you well, for that. you know, does it appear on the cover? It does, in fact. Yes. Okay. Well, then it's part of the the title. <laughs> okay. okay. All right. There you go. That's the legal definition. Thank um, you. Uh, you know, uh, just seeing that, um, I, I I must read it because. Uh, it's just fascinating. And thank you, by the way, for your title, telling me exactly what's going to be going on. I really do appreciate that. Well, you know, so many books these days have this kind of esoteric title. You have no idea what the book is about. This is a nonfiction, you know, look at uh, some of mankind's most, uh, you know, uh, astonishing faux pas, foibles, and follow-ups. So we thought we would actually say exactly what it is on the cover. It's cool. I guess you could have called it What If. That would have worked, too. Well, yeah, because a lot of these ideas seem like a good idea at the time, but over <laughs> over the course of their execution, ooh, not right, so much. Right, and and history doesn't know charm either. Obviously, no, it has no idea. Yeah. And and uh, Ron, we pulled from the world of politics, pop culture, business, fashion, uh, sports, entertainment, from the recent past and distant past, and 
you know, these ideas are, are, are colossal and often uh, laughably bad. I mean, it's uh, some, some of them have started wars, sunk uh, yeah. countries, wrecked companies, scuttled careers, lost millions, and even uh, endangered the earth. So it's a pretty interesting uh, exploration yeah. into uh, those follow-ups. Interesting. Even endangered the earth, gone, <laughs> gone yeah. that far, which is true. Yes. And that's, I can pretty much in my head think of a lot of them. Um, one of, one of the, uh, the topics that you brought up, which is something that is fascinating to me is, is why, why do people mess up things that are working so well? And you referred to, uh, Coke going, uh, a different direction. And I'm thinking of Ford, like getting away from the Ford Taurus, which was the biggest selling car. Uh, of, I mean, like why, uh, those are mysteries to me. Well, it's, it's one of those you can't leave well enough alone. And in the case of uh, Coke, for instance, mm -hmm. and this goes back to 1985, I can tell you about it here. And, and this is in the kind of what we call in the book, the bubbly post-World War II affluence of America. <laughs> and Coke is uh, preferred by 60% of the market. Mm -hmm. Yet by 1983 or so, this pesky rival called Pepsi. Yeah has begun to outsell Coke among uh, the younger people, the, the youth demographic, as they say. So Coke's uh, market share that used to be 60% sunk to 24%. Really? So they started to panic a little bit. This back in 1985. Uh, and Coke's CEO, Roberto uh, Goizetta, ordered a rethinking of the entire company's operation, even down to Coke's uh, century-old uh, formula. Wow. That got reevaluated, and they, it, you know, it, it, it had always been this sort of st stable sort of uh, the real thing, they called it back in mm -hmm. those days, kind of a bastion of cool-headed product stability, and now they're, they're sweating in the heat of competition, and, and they're ready to do the unthinkable, to change their taste. Wow. So Coke uh, researchers fan out across America. They're armed with trial samples of new Coke, as they call mm -hmm. it, a slightly uh, uh, sweeter, more Pepsi-like uh, take on the traditional uh, formula. Mm -hmm. And in blind taste tests, consumers choose new Coke over both Coke and Pepsi by wide margins. But in focus groups where you get qualitative data, uh, new Coke is met with far less enthusiasm and, and still... Uh, thirsty, shall we say, for a winner, and and to boost their, uh, you know, their their uh, margin of, of success from the past. Uh, new Coke is introduced, and immediately it goes from, <clears throat> excuse me, shall we say, fizzy to flat. Yeah. Within days, the company receives over four hundred thousand distraught calls and angry letters. They bring in a psychiatrist uh, to evaluate the tenor wow. of these calls and. <laughs> The psychiatrist said it, it sounds like people mourning the loss of a loved one. Well, kind of. Even Fidel Castro criticizes the move as another example of American <laughs> decadence. <laughs> and with boycotts looming just three months after its uh, historic birth, new Coke is history. Yeah. And traditionally formulated Coke, now termed Coke Classic, there you is go. reintroduced. And so after millions of dollars uh, spent, hundreds of millions actually, yeah. On uh, testing and marketing new Coke, the executives conclude that they simply underestimated the public's deep and abiding emotional attachment yeah. to the original. I remember when they started. Three months. Yeah. Just three months. And then they started putting them in, in the old Coke bottle, uh, whether it was plastic or glass, it was still the old Coke bottle look from the, oh, from yeah. the outside. Yeah. So they really, and it's you're, you're in uh, advertising marketing uh, uh, production. Yes. Uh, so this must be fascinating 
to you. And I do remember the slogan for Pepsi, for those who think young. And I guess that actually worked. Wow. It worked for them. You know, you're right to say that this is of particular interest to me because it's something I've run into in my career for the past 30 years, which is there is a certain truth or, or idea yeah. that somebody has within a company. Everyone sitting around the conference table says, yes, that must be it. Mm -hmm. They don't do enough. In this case, Coke did enough testing, mm -hmm. but they ignored the testing and said, no, we must do this because Pepsi is nipping at our heels. We've got to make a change after 100 years of the same formula. Yeah. We need to make this uh, change. And it just blew up right in their face. Now, in the aftermath, some people thought that this was a conspiracy, <laughs> that, that Coke had come up with this just as a way to scare people yeah. into thinking that original Coke was going to be taken off the, mar uh, off the market. Interesting. But it, there's really no, no evidence of that, and, and I know their CEO, uh, Roberto Rosetta, later said, uh, and I quote, we are neither smart enough nor stupid <laughs> enough to have come up with this conspiracy. <laughs> that is a smart CEO. That's uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the, the book also goes into some, some lighter things. Well, that's pretty light, but some lighter things and some heavier things, assassinations sure. that could have possibly, possibly been avoided had certain uh, protocols yes. and, and, and things put in place. And then I, you, you, you also say in the book that uh, what if Burt Reynolds, I guess, was he, was he was offered the role of James Bond at a point? Is that true? Yes, it is true. Uh, Burt Reynolds uh, you know, was, was offered uh, the iconic part uh -huh. of, uh, <laughs> of James Bond, and we call this story Smoky Not Stirred. <laughs> And this goes back to 1972, and Bert, yeah. who, gosh, was one of my favorites, yeah, um, fresh from his uh, star turn as the macho river adventurer, yeah. uh, I think the character's name was Lewis in 1972's Deliverance, mm -hmm. uh, which was a Best Picture nominee. Mm -hmm. uh, plus, he had this uh, this buzz-inducing semi-nude spread in Cosmopolitan, yeah. which, as a kid, I remember seeing as well. Yeah. Uh, Bert was not really nude. Uh, he, he was mostly naked, except he had a catcher's mitt over a certain part of the uh, male anatomy, shall uh -huh. we say. Okay. Uh, so that, you know, he was well covered. Yeah. But he's the hottest guy in Hollywood, and all scripts uh, go through through Bert at this point. Uh, so he's presented with the what we call the mother of all leading man roles, yeah. James Bond. Yeah. And in a mad scramble to secure, as they say, the dashing actor who can wear the tux, tote the pistol, and woo the girl, uh, producer Albert Broccoli has uh, Reynolds square in his sights. Yeah. But uh, Reynolds says, listen, an American can't play that role. That's a British role. That, that no American can play that role. I'm not going to play that role. Huh. And instead he goes on to make such a <laughs> cinematic yeah. classics as Fuzz, yeah. White, lightning yeah. and the man who loved cat dancing yeah uh over the next few years and so the the jilted uh, bro <laughs> i don't know if it's broccoli or broccoli I'm, i say broccoli uh, it is, it is broccoli actually it is broccoli. yeah broccoli who Didn't actually who actually broccoli? actually did yes that's true yeah. <laughs> that is true <laughs> they invented broccoli. yeah so instead of reynolds they go for the savoir fair tongue-in-cheek roger moore yeah uh, to uh, carry the Bond tradition forward, which is a billion-dollar bonanza that lasts 12 years. And in that time, yeah. Bert flexes his uh, diminishing star power to make such forgettable flops as Gator, yeah. WW, and the Dixie Dance Kings and two Smokey and the Bandit gems. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, not even close to what the, the Bond close. series. Not even close. So uh, he says later on that... Uh, 
uh, that he wakes up, he, he would wake up in the middle of the night and just say to himself, Bond, James Bond, and go back <laughs> to sleep in a cold sweat. <laughs> and he regretted it right up until his death. And he should have. He, 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 he never uh, took, that, he <laughs> never took that role. That would have been incredibly entertaining. I would have loved that. Uh, oh, yeah, he would have been great. Uh, uh, all right, then we talk about uh, assassinations that uh, didn't necessarily have to happen if something small had occurred yes. to prevent them. I, I, we've got one here called a confused chauffeur starts a world war. This is a very interesting one. This mm. goes back to 1914, and it involves a, uh, let's call it a tinderbox area of the world, Serbia, Croatia, Bosnia, the former uh, Yugoslavia. It's an area the U.S. has been involved with over time, but especially in the 1990s. But anyway, this goes back to 1914. So Archduke Franz Ferdinand, who was heir to the throne of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which now controls this region, mm -hmm. is parading through the streets of uh, Sarajevo uh, with his wife in an open-air limousine. And at the parade is a group of Serbians known as the Black Hand. Now, you hear that name and already you know it's not good. Right, the yes. black hand, uh, and they do not like Franz Ferdinand. They don't like anything about the Austro-Hungarian Empire lording over their their territory. So they get together and they make some bombs. And yes, back in those days, you had bomb throwers. You know, oh. today that's a that's a euphemism for anyone who takes a verbal pot shot at somebody. Yes. But back in 1914, you had guys who would gather up in a garage and make bombs and intend to throw them at at people. So. Uh, the Black Hand makes a, makes a bomb, and they are at the parade, and they toss it at Franz Ferdinand as his motorcade passes. It misses him, but it hits some of the spectators who are standing along the parade route and injures about 20 to 30 people. <laughs> so out of the goodness of his heart, yeah. good old Franz decides later that day to visit these victims of the bomb blast yeah. uh, in a nearby hospital and offer his support, condolences, whatever, and here comes the bad idea. So he instructs his limo driver to head for the hospital. The problem is the limo driver doesn't have a clue where it is, and there's no GPS or anything back in those days. Right. So the driver doesn't know where he's going. He takes a wrong turn, and he comes to a, what is essentially a dead stop on a dead-end street, and it's in front of a sandwich shop. Huh. Inside the sandwich shop is one of the would-be assassins from earlier that day, one of the bomb throwers. Huh. He's in there, he's chewing on a sandwich, you know, like a subway uh, place. And he looks out the window, and to his utter astonishment, he sees Franz Ferdinand sitting at a dead stop right there in front of him. The guy he was trying to get earlier that day is right oh there in God. front of him. So rather like uh, Dirty Harry, if you remember the movie where he's got a hot dog in one hand uh -huh. and, a, and a magnum in the other... Uh -huh. uh, he walks up to the car and sadly shoots both uh, Franz Ferdinand and his wife uh, and kills them both. And that is that assassination lights the powder keg that starts World War One. Twenty four million casualties uh, in that war. So that one wrong turn responsible indirectly for 24 million casualties. Wow. That, uh, now that's something that's. That's bad timing on somebody's part. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, suppose. and uh, it's the limo driver's fault. I always blame either the butler or the, the limo, limo driver. driver what right. they say. <laughs> now, the limo driver yeah. did it. It's uh, it, 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 the book is is fun, but now here here's the twist. You you've made this into an audio book, and yes. and, and why did you go that direction? Because I'm one of those 
rare authors, I suppose, who is experienced in video and audio production. Mm-hmm. I've got a lot of uh, people. Uh, we're, we're in Southern California. We've got a lot of friends who are voiceover people up in Hollywood. Uh-huh. So we brought them into the fold. We added some music and sound effects. Both oh, wow. uh, my co-author Eric and I read some of the stories. I've got mm-hmm. other voiceover people acting out and doing impressions and wow. and reading other stories. So it, it just made it to me a more entertaining presentation than simply the usual audiobook, which is a novelist standing in front of a exactly. microphone and reading it, you know, which goes on oh, and on wow. forever. I thought it would be more interesting. We're trying to breathe... Uh, Ron, we're trying to breathe new life mm. uh, into into history. We we know, for example, in schools, it's hardly taught these days. It's it's hardly and and the old adage is is very true that if you don't know history, you're you're damned uh, to repeat it. Yes. And and uh, you see the same mistakes being made over and over again in history, yeah. and and uh, it doesn't have to be that way. And history can be interesting. It can be engaging. Yes. It can be instructive to a young mind in particular if it's not simply the usual oh, uh, recitation of dead guys and dates, as they, as they call it. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, it and, and this tends to not do that. Yeah, I mean, your, your point is well made. I remember going to, to, to school, grade school, middle school, whatever you call that thing, and mm-hmm. uh, the teacher would stand up there and just rattle things off, and we were just looking at our at the clock. When is this going to be over? <laughs> The exactly. day that he came in and like put a put a hat on when he was talking about Napoleon or or something like that or used some type yeah. of visual aid, all of a sudden we were engaged. That simple little extra dimension of uh-huh. theatrics um, worked, uh, yeah. and, and it's it's great that you picked up on that because that's really what we're talking about. It's adding another dimension to the presentation, and that does drill people into it. It's nice. Yeah, it makes it makes it more accessible, yes. relatable. Uh, one of the things we're planning to do, mm-hmm. uh, Ron, is mm-hmm. is put together a traveling roadshow to go to schools with this idea. Perfect. And add visual representations. Perfect. Let it be interactive with asking questions, mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, you know being able to see that these are individuals who who yes had these ideas and maybe they went wrong. We also have a section in the book, uh, bad ideas gone good. Where it started out as a bad idea, but oh, actually ended up being, I guess it being works, good. Guess it works the other way but, around. But the yeah, but the idea here is to um, make it so that the individual watching, whether it be a you know middle school kid or high school kid, look at it and go, oh, that that person is kind of like me. I, I have those thoughts or feelings sometimes too. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to listen and I'm going to learn and I'm going to maybe laugh along the way and be entertained. That's nice. So that's our goal. We're also do- donating. Uh, audiobooks and printed books to schools uh, locally here for for every sale we make we we give a, a book nice. to a school so yeah we're, yeah. we're doing our best is it a is it a uh, commercial enterprise sure we'd like to sell mm-hmm. books but we also want to see if we can reinvigorate history uh, yeah. learning uh, throughout our area yeah i mean I, I, there's one thing you said that i question uh, these days it was true but now i'm not sure that uh mm-hmm. if you don't know history then then you're doomed to repeat yes. it and unfortunately mm-hmm. we seem to be repeating it even though we're familiar with it now <laughs> <laughs> and i i could give you a lot of examples of that but i'm sure i don't have to oh i think you're right about that yeah. so I, I guess that's ignorance in the broadest yes. sense of the word in other yes. words knowing it and then ignoring it 
it's as it's opposed a, to never knowing. Yeah, it's a question right? of what you do with information. <laughs> oh, I think so. Yeah. I, I think that's definitely the case. Yeah. And and uh, isn't it important these days that we try not to keep repeating the same yeah. mistakes over and over again? Yeah. So you know that's what the book's about. There you go. Yeah, I'm still eating clams uh, in in months that uh, don't end properly. So. <laughs> Well, that's, yeah, that sounds that, like a very personal thing we should take up on another well, call. Well, it's helped me, yes. help me, help me lose weight under short, short periods of time. So, <laughs> anyway. Well, well, do we have time for one more? Yes, uh, please. I've got a couple, uh, please. couple here. Um, please. Let me, tell you, uh, let me tell you one. We're on the radio, so this involves a radio personality. Alrighty. Um And we call this one, this is under the, uh, the chapter Major League Stupidity. Uh, into sports uh, section, mm-hmm. of course. And this one is called Disco Inferno Singes the White Sox. Mm-hmm. So it's July of 1979, and uh, I guess I don't mind telling you, Ron, that I remember this one because I'm old enough to remember it. But we're at the high point of the uh, platform shoe and polyester leisure suit era known as disco. Yes, sir. And as, and as popular as disco was, in fact, I was a club DJ back in New York during uh, this era, uh, lots of people hated disco and the whole uh, look at me disco attitude, especially diehard sports fans. So, enter a wild child Chicago disc jockey, Steve Dahl. And he comes up with something called Disco Demolition Night. And here's how it works you gotta hear this. For just 98 cents plus a vinyl disco record, you get into a Chicago White Sox baseball doubleheader. And between games, uh, Dahl uh, collects the records and piles them up in the outfield, then uses explosives to blow them to smithereens. Now, that's not enough problem, but here's the real problem. Upon detonation, uh-huh. a crater forms in the outfield, vinyl shards fly through the air like shrapnel, oh fire erupts, uh, and fueled by booze and, shall we say, other stimulants, uh, the... The uh, disco-despising stadium crowd then spills onto the field. People out in the parking lot jump to turnstiles. Soon a full-scale riot is raging on mm. the infield with, with fans wrecking batting cages, gouging the infield turf, burning banners. Scores of people are injured. Hundreds are arrested. Uh, Detroit Tiger manager at the time, Sparky Anderson, takes one look at the mayhem and refuses to allow his team onto the field for Good. the second game of the doubleheader. Good. And the White Sox are forced to forfeit the second game, marking the last time oh in history an American League team has dealt an automatic loss. But this, uh, Steve Dahl said later, uh, I killed Disco, and this event did it. He was very proud of it, well, even though it was complete mayhem and disaster. Yeah, I wish he had, would have chosen a different form of music. Uh, <laughs> but anyway... Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I I saw a documentary about the Bee Gees, and apparently oh, yeah, th- that that apparently ruined uh, their climb to fame, and disco started fading, and that was where they were at at the time. But they had bounced yes. back in, into other forms of of music. But yeah, it was that serious and and that hated really during that time, which is amazing in itself. If you think about it, Ron, disco was only around, and and again, unfortunately, it fell during my time yeah. uh, as a DJ in clubs. I would rather have been playing the Stones and yeah. you know, Beatles and stuff like sure. that. But um, disco was really only popular from seventy-seven ish yeah. to about eighty, and maybe eighty-one. If you're really pushing it, yeah. so the Bee Gees putting all of their 
chips in, in that direction, going all in yeah, was a mistake. on disco, yeah. it did benefit them in the short term. If you remember, right. the, the soundtrack from Saturday Night sure. Fever was, at the time, the biggest selling album of all time, yeah. and they had a lot of songs on it. But you're, you're right, it pigeonholed them yeah. uh, as a disco band, and they didn't really recover after that. Uh, I think Barry Gibb is still kicking around, but uh, unfortunately, his two brothers are gone. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it it brought out their biggest talent of all, which was songwriting. So that you know, yeah, there you yeah. go. They're, they're good good songwriters yeah. for sure. No, no question about yeah. it. Yeah, I wish they would have gone for a different form of music that apparently is still around today, and I don't really care for it. But anyway, that's no <laughs> violence is no way to solve our musical problems. <laughs> yes, you don't blow it up. No, you, you don't blow you, it. You sit down, you talk about it, you right, try to right. compromise. You, you don't blow it up. <laughs> that's correct. Uh, did you have another example? I do. I have a, uh, <clears throat> this, this one goes back in history a little further, and we call this one uh, the President's Scandalous Embarrassment, if you pick up my uh, unsettled uh, and crude uh, meaning on that sure one. Do. Uh, and this gives Crack of Dawn a whole new meaning, uh, Ron, because each morning, President John Quincy Adams sneaks down to the Potomac and undresses and he proceeds to skinny dip Hello. with the uh, with the ducks and the geese all the while, as we say, naked as a jaybird. <laughs> uh, a newspaper reporter named Anne Royal hears about it, and she hides out in the Potomac's foliage and catches the unsuspecting president in the buff. Uh. So she takes this all true. She takes his clothes and holds them ransom until he agrees to grant her a long-awaited interview, uh. and he gets his clothes back and. And uh, she gets the interview, and she doesn't mention his, shall we say, ballsy morning escapades. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> but soon word gets out, as it always does in Washington, and, and now Adams is, is uh, swimming in a pool of ridicule and shame. So as a result, his administration's policy agenda stalls, and he's soundly defeated for re-election in 1828 by Andrew Jackson. And in the end, the electorate uh, considered Adams sagging credibility and mm -hmm. saggy exide and concluded that the emperor had no clothes. So, <laughs> uh, both, uh, by the way, as a, a cherry on top of that cupcake, both, um, both Benjamin Franklin and later Teddy Roosevelt were also said to be big fans of skinny dipping. And I'm not sure your audience wants to have that mental picture in their mind no, no, as they uh, go through their day, but uh, yeah. it, that happens to be true. Wow. <laughs> it's funny. It's wow. funny stuff. I, I, uh, that story has lent itself to more puns than <laughs> well, story. Yeah, I had about four of them. In yeah, that, yeah, at in least four. <laughs> <laughs> and, and well <laughs> done, too. Well done. Well, thank you. The crack of dawn was yeah, my favorite yeah, one. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, <laughs> I've got one more, if, if there's time sure. for it. Uh, and uh, we call this one E.T.'s Mission to Mars Aborted. So the year is 1981. And this bad idea comes from the chocolate-covered nuts, as we call them, at uh, Mars Incorporated, the candy people. Are you still doing the pun from the previous story? I can't stop it, Ron. They're in me. They must come out. I'm, a write, I'm an advertising writer by yeah. trade. I cannot you stop, can't stop it. You can't stop it. It just comes right out. <laughs> so these chocolate-covered nuts, yeah. yes, I'll say it again, right. uh, turned down perhaps the greatest product placement opportunity in movie history. So, Ron, I'm sure everybody in your audience, uh, you included, me included, has seen the movie E.T., right? Sure, so sure. in the film, 
Elliot lures E.T., the extraterrestrial, out of hiding with a, a trail of candies. So E.T.'s producers uh, approach Mars Incorporated for permission to use one of their products in the film. They figure a visitor from another planet would most likely be attracted to the most popular candy on Earth, which is M&M's. But the space cadets, there's another one, at Mars say no. They further state, we don't want an alien eating our candy. It's going to frighten children. Yeah. So that's a quote. That's an actual, I mean, if you can imagine the stupidity. But sure. So E.T.'s producers are now stuck and they scramble to find a replacement. And they stumble upon an obscure, largely unpopular candy Hershey has been struggling with called Reese's Pieces. Mm. And a deal is struck where Hershey agrees to pay absolutely nothing for placing Maurice's pieces in the film. They pay nothing. In exchange, they promote the movie and some of their own advertising for the candy. I see. Well, I think we all know that E.T. rockets past Star Wars to become the highest grossing film of its time, and mm -hmm. Reese's Pieces sales uh, blast off with it. Yeah. So, Hershey's calls the deal the biggest marketing coup in history, and product placement becomes a staple in TV and movies wow. thereafter. So that's the one that really launched. I mean, you see TV shows and movies now. Yeah. They've got products everywhere. Sure. I mean, you, you, and that's all paid placement. And that really hadn't happened to any great extent before E.T., but everybody picked up on, you know, all the advertisers picked up on the success of Reese's Pieces, which was basically going nowhere, and they couldn't figure out what to do with it. It gets into the movie E.T., and now it's, uh, you know, now everybody knows who Reese's Pieces are. Interesting. It's, it's, uh, it's amazing how that marketing blunder uh, really costs, uh, you know, well, M&M's is still an extremely popular candy, but imagine what it could have been. Yeah. And then later on, they were sure to not miss any further opportunities, and they had, uh, M&M's was sure to have on, on uh, subsequent missions uh, of U.S. space shuttles. Sure. They were sure to have M&M's floating around in the cabin and have that on video. Because they were so embarrassed by this, right. by this, uh, you know, misstep uh, with with Reese's Pieces. Yeah, and that's an example of a lesson well learned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another right. marketing blunder. There you go. You know? so it's it's um, this is fun, and this is just the tip of the iceberg as well. Um, yeah, there's 92 others. We only ooh. did eight, eight today. Wow, well, we a long <laughs> way to go here. Well, uh, <laughs> it's called uh, 100 of the Worst Ideas in History, uh, and that's really as far as you have to go right now. Um, the website uh, is uh, 100 Worst Ideas. The 100 is not spelled out. It's the numerical 100, worstideas.com, and there you can uh, get information. Pick up the yep. audio book. If you're taking a car trip or something, uh, or even commuting, mm -hmm. uh, this is a great way to to entertain yourself and uh, on yeah. the way back and forth. Summer travel, summer travel, uh, yeah. waiting rooms, airports. It's also run, by the way, to get a shameless plug-in. Yes. <clears throat> Excuse me, on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. The printed books available at Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Perfect, perfect. Hey, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. I hope we can hook up again next time you put out another one. Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> and I'm sure that'll happen. <laughs> Well, sure. Uh, maybe maybe next time, 100 of the best ideas in history. What do you think of that? Uh, the worst really does pull them in, though. I got to tell you. It's uh, schadenfreude, right? The, the glee you take in the misfortune of others. Yes, That's, everybody loves that. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm, a, I'm the front line for that one. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> hey, uh, pleasure speaking to you. Uh, one more time, it's uh, 100worstideas.com. 
uh, the uh, pick up the audio book. It's, uh, it's no reason not to. Well, that'll do it for me today. Thank you to my guest. I'll be back again uh, next time with a, uh, a regular program where I talk incessantly, uh, that kind of thing, you know, the comedy kind of sarcastic tinge on everything. Yeah, I'll do that next time. But uh, for now, uh, have yourselves a wonderful day, and I wish you peace.